Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ninth Story Studios. Giving story a voice. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Hello, kiddies. Ready to be terrified, I see. Well, today is your lucky day. Today, we have two frightening tales that are sure to put ice in your veins. (laughs) Before we slice deep into the main tale by Christopher Long, let's enjoy an aperitif. In this story, young Claude has found himself in a clever trap, one designed by a very thirsty man whom we'll call, oh, let's say, Vlad. What's that guy doing over here? He's been standing at that shelf for like 20 minutes. He looks frantic. He's going to have a heart attack or something. Hmm. He has been there quite a long time, hasn't he? Why don't you take your cigarette break, Ronnie? I'll see what I can do to lower his blood pressure. Cool. Thanks, Mr. Pyre. The red one. Damn it. The one with the cross on it. Can't pick the wrong one. If only I knew. Good evening. Huh? Oh. Thank you for shopping at Mega Huge. I see you're enjoying our extensive wine collection. I didn't hear you come up behind me. Yes. I'm very light on my feet. How can I help you? I'm trying to figure out which wine to get. I finally got up the courage to ask the girl from accounting over for dinner and. I need to make sure I get the right wine. Hmm. Yes. Nothing beats drinking the perfect red for dinner. I mean, with dinner. I just can't decide. There's so many here. I don't know anything about wine. It's really intimidating. Yes. Yes, it can be. Look at all the bottles. So many of them. Almost too many to count. See how the light dances on the surface of the bottles. And so many labels. All the words. So many letters. Yes. Bottles. Lights. Letters. So many. So many. It's enough to make you a little... Dizzy, isn't it? Yes, I feel strange. Mm, Yes, it's entrancing, mesmerizing. It makes you forget everything and relax. Yes, relax. 
Excellent. Delicious. Well now, it sounds like poor Claude ended up all dried up. Vlad had no problem getting what he wanted to drink to come right to him and had no problem making his selection. Wouldn't you rather be like Vlad? Of course you would. Trying to figure out which wine you'll like can really suck the life out of you. <laughs> if only Claude had used Wink, he wouldn't have had such a draining evening. Wink makes it easy to discover great wine, and you don't even have to leave your crypt. You just answer some questions about things like how you take your coffee and if you like blueberries, and their team of mystical wine experts use their powers to see into the future and send you wine you'll love, shipped right to your door. Finding a great wine doesn't have to be terrifying. Don't be a clod, kiddies. Discover great wine today. Go to trywink.com slash wicked library and you'll get $20 off your first shipment. That's T-R-Y-W-I-N-C dot com slash wicked library for $20 off. Trywink.com slash wicked library. Warning. If you've listened to the Wicked Library for the past seven seasons, you should be aware that this podcast isn't for sensitive listeners or the faint of heart. Suffice to say that by now, you should know that if you're easily offended or are likely to complain if you get really scared by dramatic readings of story that are horror and adult themed, you shouldn't listen. But... The world being what it is, here we are again telling you that maybe you shouldn't listen. Well, not this time. If you haven't figured out that the Wicked Library has strong themes of an adult, sometimes violent and decidedly scary nature, then by all means, keep listening. Go on, it's just that you're not going to complain about it. Oh, you can try, but you'll be scoffed at and ridiculed mercilessly by the host, the narrators, the producers, and you could bet your dangling participle me. Go ahead, try it. You're not going to like it one little bit, but our millions of listeners will eat it up. <laughs> and that's not hyperbole, kiddies. So there's your warning. Enjoy the show, kiddies. <laughs> down and relax while you can. Your librarian has taken such good care of you for seven seasons. I see no need to lighten up for season eight. Hold on to your breath, kiddies. It might just be your last. Once again, it's story time at the Wicked Library. Chapter 
Hello, and welcome to Season 8 of the Wicked Library, Episode number 801. We have a great season planned for you with some brand new authors and some of your returning favorites. We also have a brand new series that we're launching that takes place in the world of the Wicked Library and features the librarian. This is an exclusive new series only available to our supporters at the $10 a month and above level, but everybody will get to hear the first episode in a couple of weeks. It's called The Private Collector, and it explores what the librarian does with his time when he's not introducing the show. He does have a job, you know, and I'm sure you're going to find it fascinating. Created by me and Aaron Vleck, written by Aaron Vleck, and featuring the voice talents of yours truly and Nelson W. Piles. Now, today we have something really special for our launch. This will be our first ever audio play. wanted to do something a little different to kick off the season, and we think you're really going to enjoy it. This story was written by Christopher Long and adapted by the author specifically for this audio presentation. And of course, don't forget to stay tuned after the story to hear the interview with the author. And now, The Rags on His Back, by Christopher Long, told by Andy James Lovering, David Alt, Erica Sanderson, and Amber Collins, featuring a custom musical score written by our good friend Nico of We Talk of Dreams. Don't ask me where I've been, sir. Believe me when I say you don't want to know. He said it with such conviction. Declared it such a horrific and indisputable fact. It was hard not to pity him. Hard not to be curious. Although I've often felt the same way about this man since the first time I ever saw him. He's always sat on the same street corner and wears what must have once been expensive clothes. They look ancient now, though. As ragged as their owner. His hair is a long, straggled nest of greasy grey tangles. His beard is often matted with food and encrusted with spittle. He's a mess, certainly. But if you take the time to look closely beneath the grime, you can see some trace of the man he once was. The sharp intelligence in his dark eyes. We have a friendship of sorts, based around spare change, occasional conversation and take-out cups of coffee. One morning I passed his spot to find no sign of him, which was unusual to say the least. He didn't reappear until a week or so later, by which time he looked quite different. He seemed paler, thinner, older somehow, haunted. Concerned and, as I said, curious, I insisted he told me what had happened to him. I saw a ghostly concern visibly flicker across his face before he began his tale. It was so cold that night. I was trying to keep warm when she stopped right there, right where you're standing now. She stopped and looked down at me. She was pale in the moonlight and, and well-dressed, but she seemed friendly enough. I, I was hoping she might give me some change, but instead she asked if I was cold and hungry. I am, miss. Then maybe you would like to come home with me. We can get you out of this bitter cold. Get you fed and warm for a night at least. Now, normally I, I would have said no straight away. I've got no place for people who want to lead me to their lord, and I've, I've learned to be wary of any charity that approaches you after dark. But 
As I said, it was so cold that night. As cold as the grave. In fact, now that I think about it, it, it might have felt even colder around her. She had an air of, of winter about her. Except for her... Except for her eyes, that is. There was some warming, familiar echo in her eyes. It, it spoke of home. Maybe that was why I couldn't help but say yes to her. I don't want to cause you any trouble, miss. It's no trouble at all. In fact, I insist... The streets were dark by then. We cut through alleyways and narrow lanes I'd never seen before and I hope never to see again. Especially now that I know where they lead. The shadows there were rarely still. I, I never saw a soul about us, but, but I heard them. Some were far off, concealed in the mist, but others sounded close. Too close not to be seen. Not that my guide seemed troubled by them. She simply smiled that sweet smile of hers and, and led the way. Nearly home. We passed a, a ramshackle graveyard and an old ruined church before we arrived at her house. It was a stout, murky place. It looked as if it was trying to hide itself in the gloom at the end of that shambling street. As we approached, the front door opened. Standing there were two small children peering out at us, a boy and a girl, both dressed in neat, dark clothing, both as pale as their mother. They looked at us and smiled, that same smile I had seen on their mother's lips. Look what mother has brought home. A poor stray. He is no stray. He has simply strayed. Out of the way, children. This poor tired man has no need of your nonsense. Yes, mother. Now, where is the good doctor? He's in the study, mother. We're not to disturb him. It was strange, but the lights in that place seemed only to serve to deepen the shadows that clung to the walls. The children took my overcoat and bag. Their mother, meanwhile, hung her own coat and hat by the door before taking me into a large, dark sitting room and seating me in an armchair by a roaring fire. Wait here. Warm yourself. Oh, I won't stay long. I don't want to get you into trouble with your husband, miss. I already told you it's fine. Now do as you're told and make yourself at home. I won't be long. Besides, my husband is a better man than many give him credit for. If you insist, miss... It wasn't easy to relax in that place. I tried to tell myself it was because I wasn't used to being in someone else's home, but it was something else. It felt unusual in that house. It, it felt as if the, the darkness might, might suddenly wake. She was gone for some time, and although I occasionally heard her children giggling and playing in the shadows, I never saw them. Hello? If they were there, they kept their distance. I don't mind telling you, I, I felt oddly uneasy in that room. It all had the impression of being so unreal, yet so dreadfully familiar. It was as if I had intruded into a long, abandoned nightmare. 
stillborn, unfinished, waiting to find its purpose. It didn't help that the gloom in that house was almost palpable, barely kept at bay by the few small lamps and that, that large open fire. Oh, better than being outside, you moaning old sod. Get a grip on yourself. Unable to settle, I, I got up and went over to the window. The street outside appeared dark and still. An old photo sitting on the sideboard caught my eye. I, I lifted it up so I could see it better in the lamplight. Oh, it's hard to say why even now such a seemingly normal photo could fill me with such dread. All those smiling faces frozen in time, smiling at me, laughing at me, as if they knew my every secret. As if they knew more about myself than I did. The longer I looked at them, I could, I could feel them judging me, enjoying my fate, my failures. It drove me to step away from the photo, sweating, my, my hands shaking, my heart racing. Had I heard their laughter in the room with me? I still can't be sure even now. Is everything all right? My host was standing in the doorway, holding a tray. I'm fine, just a little tired. Then please, sit down. I did as I was told. She came over and gently laid the tray on my lap. There was a small cup of tea, a plate of cheeses, grapes and crackers. It was more food than I'd eaten in a single sitting for such a long time. She must have seen the look on my face. It's just an appetizer. The main meal will be served soon enough. You're too kind, thank you. It's nothing, really. We must all do our bit. The tea smelt perfumed. It was refreshing and warm. The tiny cup didn't last me long, and I turned my attention to the food. The crepes were sweet and succulent. None of the cheeses were too strong or rich for me. I finished them quickly. Maybe it's even fair to say roughly. Still, there was no one watching me. I, I had no need to put on airs and graces. Except... Except maybe that's not entirely true. I couldn't see anyone in that cavernous room with me, but it, it felt so completely empty that it, it led me to doubt my senses. It was a silence so quiet that it felt like it had to be concealing something. It was unnerving. No room should ever feel so, so terribly quiet and empty. It was as if I could sense it holding its breath. I set the tray on the floor when I was finished and tried to relax. I told myself that I was simply not used to such kindness. I... I I thought of the lady of the house, her, her gentle smile, that floral perfume she wore, her smile. These were good people, living in a house that was too large for them, that was all. They were a family and they'd taken me in. I hadn't had a family in so long, which made me remember that wedding photograph and, and all those smiling strangers. All those smiles possibly long dead. It seemed such a childish thing to fear, except a stray thought kept needling at me. The couple, just married, standing at the centre of the photo, did not contain the lady of the house. She hadn't been in the photo at all, I was certain of it. The sharp little doubt hooked 
into my fraying nerves. It drove me to get up from my chair, consumed by the sudden need to inspect the picture again, to put myself at ease. You're meant to be resting before dinner. He was watching me from the doorway. I've no idea how long he'd been there. He hadn't made a sound. Will your father be joining us? We're eating without the good doctor tonight, sir. He's working in his room and not to be disturbed. If we're noisy, he shouts at us. Or worse. His silence left me unsure of what to say. Except that maybe my own father had been the same. He'd been driven by cruelty, always kept a temper boiling underneath his rough hide. He'd been drunk most nights, drunk enough for the beast to peer out from his dead eyes sometimes. I grew up fearing the same beast would somehow awaken within me one day. I'd spent my life working so hard to get out from under that man's shadow, but it didn't work. I ended up as you see me now. Another failure. The gap between my decision to live a better life than my father and my current status has always baffled me. It makes me feel as if I've forgotten so much of myself. The bones hidden beneath my own skin are a mystery to me some days. Dinner is ready. (laughs) I watched him slip away and thought about leaving that place as swiftly as possible. I knew it was not as it should be, I just couldn't say exactly why. I simply felt sure of it. It was toxic, infected, possibly even contagious. I couldn't even be sure if it was a house at all. It felt more like the impression of a house, the shadow of a house. Still, some dire need to understand what I'd been led there to witness kept me from leaving. Still, I did pause out in the hall. I looked at the front door and wondered if it was locked. We are ready for you, sir. She was standing in the hallway, watching me. When I saw her, she turned and retreated. The smell of dinner drew me through that eerie house after her. It led me to a dour dining room, where the only light came from thin, mismatching candles perched in in rusting candlesticks placed along the centre of a, a long, narrow table. The lady of the house was already seated at the far end with her children on either side of her. They had left the head of the table for me. You're all too kind, thank you. The lady of the house stood and quietly, gently spoke. Please take a seat. Eat. I obeyed. The children fixed me a plate of food and brought it to me. I ate heartily, at times forgetting my manners. When I was finished, I saw my plate was full again. I couldn't eat another bite. Nonsense. You must still be hungry. It was the strangest thing, but at her suggestion, my stomach stirred and growled. I started to eat again. The food was so warm, so flavorful. It was hard to resist. The good doctor had an appetite such as yours. He used to devour his meals before he returned to his work, but he rarely joins us these days. He is fed in other ways. I wiped the grease from my mouth with a dirty sleeve before I spoke. It's not my place to say anything against your husband, madam, but he must be blind if he cannot see the gifts life has granted him. The family stopped eating. They smiled at my rather careless remark and then they laughed. 
It was at that moment I knew that I had doomed myself by coming here, by staying here. It, it was in the way they laughed. Neither polite nor warm, but knowing. It seemed to teeter on the brink of some terrible, maddening abyss that lay within all of them. It, it made me want to bolt from that room. It, it made me want to run down the hall and out into the street. Except I feared that the street was beyond my grasp by that point. It's getting late. I, I really should be going. The laughter stopped. The look they gave me turned my blood cold. A cat must look at its prey in the same way. In those final moments when the beast holds back a little and allows its meal a small modicum of hope. Its eyes always betraying the true hunger. I'd seen that look on my father's face and I saw it again in that dining room on those... Three pale faces. You can't leave yet. We've not had dessert. I couldn't eat another mouthful. And you've all been so kind to me, but I, I can't stay any longer. Then perhaps an epitaph, sir, before you leave. Uh, I'm not really... An excellent idea, daughter. My husband always loved something to cleanse his palate. I watched as the boy went to a sideboard and poured me a drink. The woman and her daughter were still eyeing me closely. Silence was too much to bear. I had to say something to break it. Your son tells me your husband won't be joining us. Sadly, the good doctor is hard at work. I could hear him. Footsteps above our heads pacing back and forth. Over and over again. What is he working on exactly? His work is secret. We're not supposed to see. My husband carries out his own research. After hours. He visits patients at night? In a manner of speaking. Silent as an owl, the boy placed a glass of brandy in front of me and went back to his chair. The drink didn't look or smell unusual. In, in fact, it seemed to be a fine choice. The scent was strikingly familiar. The glass felt comfortable in my hand. My husband calls it a restorative. It will warm you up, sir. I took the slightest, smallest sip. The taste lingered on my tongue as a, as a wisp of it whirled through my senses. Then it coiled, turned and struck, catching at the back of my throat. <coughs> stronger than it looks. Whatever doesn't kill you will only make you stronger. Now, children. As I took another sip, the drink began to have an unsettling effect. The room grew lighter around me. I could see the colour of the carpet a little clearer, the, the patterns on the wallpaper, the design on the plates and the colour of the children's hair. The ink-black shifting shadows were withdrawing. See? It is restoring you. Your husband has a stronger stomach than I, miss. That made them laugh again. The brandy nearly persuaded me to join in. I, I really should be leaving. I, I don't want to impose. Nonsense. How could you impose when you're already home? Something long dead awoke in my soul and screamed when she spoke those words. I I'm sorry? You have come home to us at last, my husband. The last swig of brandy brought the room fully to light. The grandeur I had seen before was long gone, a mere illusion of luster. The wallpaper was old and mouldering. The windows smashed in, the carpet threadbare, strewn with debris and dead rodents. The table was lined with rotten food and broken plates. 
The children's clothes weren't as I had seen and their throats... Their throats had been slit open so long ago. The blood had congealed around the old wound down their thin, white necks. Father! Blood traced the shape of their colourless lips. As they ran towards me, I stumbled back from my chair. What is this? What have you done to me? The lady of the house stood, and I could see then that her own throat was cut as well. Although, unlike the children, she had other wounds. Her arms and wrists, her face, her chest, she'd been opened by skilled hands. Her clothes cut out of the way to gain access to her flesh and organs. As she walked towards me on once dissected legs, a wretched memory returned to me. Some forgotten sensation of holding a scalpel, gripping the cold steel and working over her, cutting into her. The children had been a quick labour, but she had fascinated me for too long. All those other women had merely been for practice. Substitutes. Starters before the main course. Do you remember us now? My husband. Her voice was a strained whisper. It sounded as if it bled through her gaping wounds, each and every one of them. I tried so very hard to hold the memories back, but they fit perfectly. I've spent so many days and nights of my life out on the street. I'd stop questioning how I ever got there. Now, though, I started to see the truth of it. I could see the once fine clothes I had worn as I had fled into the night covered in the blood of my family. And there was something else, something deeply, impossibly troubling. I could see the time that had passed since that moment. The many years that had washed over my ruined life. There were too many of them, far too many decades, centuries. I'd seen the city rewrite itself over and over again around me and never questioned my place there. My daughter stepped forward and looked me in the eye. Father, don't you remember the night you came home and went straight to your study? We begged you to join us for dinner. I could hear those pacing feet above us again. They grew louder as I pulled back from that decaying dining room and into the hall. The whole house had become a ruin around me now, but I could remember every part of it. I had spent so many years there living two very different lives. Mother sent us to check on you, but we saw your instruments. We saw your notes. You dispatched us so quickly. I could barely even be sure which child was speaking as I pulled further away, reaching the foot of the stairs. Their mother tottered close behind them. You never gave them time to scream, my love. You always had such quick hands. Almost as quick as your temper on a dark day. I wanted to tell them that they were wrong, but I knew in my heart that it was true. God help me, all of it was true. I found you standing over them, and I was foolish enough to try and fight you. You smiled as you cut my throat, my love. As you took me apart, piece by piece, organ by organ. When you were done... You vanished into the night, and the city took you away from us. 
We have spent so long looking for you since then. But the city hides you so well. It won't allow you to be found. It keeps you all to itself. At the top of the stairs, a door flew open and a figure appeared glaring down at me. It gripped the banister with blood-stained hands. Gore dripped from those clenched fists and drizzled into the hall. I always knew it was you. Those stories in the paper. The murders. The letters which were clearly not written by the killer. I always knew it was you who was killing those poor women. All part of your grand work that you kept hidden from the rest of the world. The dead thing at the top of the stairs growled. I saw red eyes and clenched, crooked teeth. Please, Father, please don't leave us with him. What? What is he? I could almost see my own face up there amongst the shadows. Only it had lost whatever soul should lay behind its eyes. It was twisted and consumed by rage. Blood-stained, beast-like. No longer human. When you ran, you left your murderous intent behind with us. The myths the world built around you have made him grow stronger. Now, he works above us. He hunts some nights. Other nights, he turns his intentions to us instead. That devilish figure began to march down the stairs. It it came straight for me. I didn't know what to do. I'm ashamed to say I couldn't face it. I turned and fled from that place. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I I can't. I I, I can't. I ran out the front door and into the dark streets beyond. I, I raced past the ruined church and the graveyard with the screams of my dead family still ringing in my ears. I dodged through those old dark alleys and I began to see them for what they were. A maze of the city as it was and it never should have been created for a gaunt nightmare figure in a top hat and midnight cloak to hunt through. A nightmare that was in some way a stolen part of my own self. There were shapes in the gaslight, screams. Cackles and shrill whistles. Over it all, I heard my family pleading with me to stay, and the bellowing howl of that dark reflection of myself I'd left them with. I never looked back. I simply ran and ran until I found streets and sounds that were familiar. I can't say how long it took, but I found my place here again. The lights are brighter here. I feel safer amongst the noise and traffic. And now I sit and pray every day that I'll forget again soon. I can't live with these memories in my head, but I can't die in spite of them. I've tried. The city won't let me go. When he was finished telling me his story, he looked a broken man. Couldn't it have all been some... the terrible nightmare? I can still taste the food and drink they gave me in that house. I can feel those dark streets out there waiting for me in the city's own shadow. Why won't this city let me die, sir? What form of cruel punishment is this exactly? Surely there have been worse monsters than me in its lifetime. Later, after we'd talked a while longer, I left him to rest. I walked to a nearby corner and lingered there, watching him as he spoke to another passerby. 
thanking them for some spare change. I hadn't the heart to tell him I knew exactly where he had been. I couldn't bring myself to tell him that he'd missed one small detail in that house he'd been taken to. He'd had an elder son in his past life as well. One who came late to the slaughter that night. One he had killed out on the street and left to wander alone. Another outcast like himself. It held the wedding photo my mother had taken in his hand and not seen me at the center of it. It was okay, though. Now I could find my mother's house again. Together, we could try to free my father from the city that would not let him rest. We could rescue him from the rags it had cast onto his back. Oh, it's not that easy to leave the Wicked Library. There's still an interview with the author. But first, this. So today my guest is Christopher Long, and we've just heard his story, The Rags on His Back. Great story. Now, this is interesting because when you first submitted the story, you're the first one that we've done this with. It was actually a regular prose story like all the stories we get. And I thought that we wanted to do something a little different to kick off the new season. And it also felt like this story lent itself very well to being a true audio drama. So I actually asked you to adapt it for audio and we've done that. So this is a first for the wicked library. Oh, wow. And I'm uh, privileged. Exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and it's, it's great because when I first started reading through the story, you, you do this so well through the course of the story that you don't realize until you get to almost the very end of the story that this is a ripper tale. Yeah. I, that's kind of what happened when I wrote it. Um, cause when I started writing it, I didn't actually realize that's what it was going to be. Mm-hmm. It's when I first started writing this, it was for, um, it was a couple of years ago now, Stephen King started some competition. He'd released a book of short stories. Was it the Bizarre of Bad Dreams, I think? And yeah. he basically said, he, he basically opened this thing up that anyone could send a story in. And I thought, well, I could give that a try. And I wanted to set it in London. And I started writing it. And I, I knew I wanted to start with a homeless guy. And I wanted to sort of have him telling someone a story. And it was sort of this woman turned up and... I kind of ran with it in the first draft thinking, okay, she's going to be something, I don't know, probably vampiric or, you know, something parasitic that's going to happen to him. And it was only as I was getting through the story that I started to realize it was sort of shifting as I was writing it. And yeah, it was really odd how it suddenly hit me what I was writing. And I was like, oh God, I I think I've been writing Jack the Ripper and not actually figured out what I was doing until the moment he realized it. It was really odd. Yeah, that's one of my favorite things about writing is whenever you're writing a story and you don't quite realize where it's going, the characters kind of tend to take on a life of their own sometimes. Yeah, yeah. It's really odd as well because it's like, it's, you don't know whether you're building it or whether you're discovering it. Like, I've, I had an idea ages ago. Like, um, it was a friend of mine wanted help writing a comic to do with superheroes in Britain. And I sort of offered to help. And then instead of like writing what he wanted, I went off on this whole tangent about like sort of a hero that would run through the history of London and would sort of change as the city changed. And one of the ideas I had was 
having Jack the Ripper as a character in it, but not as this sort of evil, immortal killer, but as sort of this weak old man that the city wouldn't let die. I'd forgotten about it. And then when I got to that point in this story, I was like, oh, I've been writing him. I I didn't even realize that was still in the back of my brain, but it fit so nicely when I got to it. I was like, oh, that's what it was. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it it, it came together really well. And, you know, it was a lot of fun to kind of cast a bunch of different folks in the story and and get them to, to bring kind of a new life to it. And um, I should probably start off by saying that uh, the Chris and I were actually in an anthology together. So we were in the Shadows yep. of the Door anthology, and uh, I had the uh, the privilege of, of narrating on that as well. Yeah, that's right. You're actually, you. that was the first time I'd ever heard one of my stories read back. When um, Mark Nixon, he sent me the file to have a listen to like the beginning of it, and I sat listening to it, and it was so weird to hear like my own reading. Like you'd given it, a different energy to what it had on the page, but it flowed so nicely. It was brilliant. Yeah. That's one of the f- really fun things about taking what's off the page and, and adapting it because everybody kind of brings something of their own to it. They're going to interpret and pick up on different things. And when you bring it all together, it's this kind of new and unique animal that uh, really transforms. Yeah, definitely. It's, um, I, I, it's one of those things where like, when I started writing stories in general, I, I never thought of any sort of audio sort mm-hmm. of version of them, which is crazy. Cause I mean, like sort of storytelling is such an audio form. And then, I mean, for the first time last year, I actually go up and read one of my own stories to an audience and it totally changes the story. Yeah. Which is, I, it was, um, the, the one I did, it was for a Halloween night and it had, it was slightly sort of darker than the stuff I write normally, and a little bit funnier as well. Mm-hmm. And like when you're reading it out loud and people were starting to laugh at the beginning and it's, I was thinking like, I know how dark this gets at the end and you can play to that and change it. <laughs> and sort of, you could see people relaxing into the story. And then by the time we got to the end of that one, you could see them getting uncomfortable. And it's, it's that really cruel thing of, I made that happen. That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a, a unique energy to live storytelling, which is, you, you kind of get a little bit of that with, you know, conversion from the written form to uh, like an audio play or an audio drama or, you know, what we normally do for the Wicked Library. But it's it's totally different when you're there in person because there's this energy and there's this there's this conversation that occurs between yeah. the audience and, you know, the, the teller uh, where, you know, you take a little bit from what they give you and the energy that they're they're giving and you give that back to them and you can control to a certain extent, the way that the story, you know, resonates. And I think that every time I've seen a live story told, it's different, even if it's the same story, because it's a different audience, it's a different situation, a different setting. And it's, it's one of the really cool things that I'm sad that we don't have more of these days. Yeah, absolutely. I sort of, because I'd spent the day before that waiting to get on the stage going, oh, God, what am I doing? I've never done this before. <laughs> and then got off the stage and I was like, can I get back up there and do that again now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's something you can really uh, get addicted to. So tell me about this story. What was something about the story that made it one that you really wanted to tell? Well, I think it sort of it comes from, like I said, when I was first writing it, it was I was trying to think of something that would just give it an, an edge to draw the reader in. I thought if it started as someone actually encountering someone who was telling them a story, and I mean, 
very originally in the first draft, the idea would have been that sort of what in this in the final version is really Jack's story in a way. It would have been someone telling someone almost like a warning that they would then ignore and they would then wander into the same situation. Mm-hmm. And it just, I, I always have this thing with like sort of, with living sort of in the Midlands, it's not that close to London. So I might go there for a couple of days every so often. And I always feel like with London, you can only ever just about scratch the surface. It's like any sort of big city. You always feel like you're missing like the really interesting little side streets and all the other things that are going on. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I wanted to try and find a way to set a story that started off more on that surface level of London, then drew you through into sort of the older, darker history of it. Because mm-hmm. that just felt like the ideal place to set like a really interesting short story that would hopefully leave people at the end where if they came to London and they look around it, maybe they would start to see those sort of corners of those streets and imagine it, which really appealed to me. I always love that idea of like with what Mark did with that anthology of putting a story in a very definite place, mm-hmm. but then you just sort of, you thread it under the surface so that it's always just waiting there for someone to walk past it and go, that looks familiar. Right. Right. It's there waiting for them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Makes it very meta. Um, yeah. So storytelling and, and writing stories is you're an author. And I think anybody who listens that writes knows it's not easy to get what's in the head onto the page. And there's a lot of times you go through successive drafts and try to fix things oh, yeah. and characters change. And sometimes you're like, why am I doing this? So <laughs> w- what was your biggest struggle with this particular story? I tell you, actually, the biggest one with this, once I'd done that first draft and I'd realized what the ending actually was going back and sharpening sort of doing sort of the second and third. And what at that point was like the fourth and final draft of the prose version. Mm-hmm. I felt like I was telegraphing the ending because I, it was, I kept thinking like, no, that's too obvious a clue. That's giving that away. And it, it took like a couple of times I'd show a bit to my wife and go, can you figure out where this is going mm-hmm. just to sort of make sure? Cause I was so certain there were these great big flashing neon signs saying, Hey, guess what? This guy's Jack the Ripper. Yeah. It was like, I, try to take them out. They just felt like they were creeping back in all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting how that works. And it's, I think that we're more critical as writers sometimes because we know what the ending is and we know what the clues are. So for us, it's very obvious, but if it's done right, uh, the reader has no idea because they're caught up in the moment. And as long as you make those characters and those situations interesting enough to kind of hold their, their attention, Drawing the obvious conclusion is sometimes a little more difficult. Now, I, I mean, I can say I do that a lot whenever I watch movies and read books. I'm like, oh, I know where this is going. Um, <laughs> yeah. They call that the writer's curse. But you did a very <laughs> good job with this where by the time I got to the end, I was like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, that's what's going on here. And I and didn't pick that up thing on as well of like putting in that last little extra twist. I always hope catch people off guard. So you've got the reveal of who he is, but then when you pull back out of the story, it turns out that even the person you go into the story with is linked to him in such a way that you didn't see it coming until the end. Yeah. Just to sort of give it that little kick at the end, which I, I, yeah, if that was sort of, that was a nice moment of putting that in just to even keep the narrator who introduces you to this guy into the framework. So that, that like your central character is so locked into his own story without ever really knowing he's in there. It's, it's left as sort of the readers that will go away from it. They'll always, they'll know that a little bit more from him. And it, I suppose in an interesting way, it almost makes him a sympathetic character, which I never thought I'd be able to do with a character. Like someone is sort of, you know, Jack the Ripper is obviously, I mean, it's sort of, it's almost now become the figure beyond whoever it actually was. Cause there's still no real clue. Right. 
yeah, I, I sort of I like the idea of leaving him as this sort of someone you could almost feel sorry for who's been abandoned, even though he has done these terrible things. And like you know, the story shows you sort of the people he killed and left in his wake, but they're still trying to bring him home. Right. Yeah, it's, it's quite redemptive actually for me. It, it's very interesting when you, and that's kind of a fun challenge I think is to to take one of these characters who's very dark and has all this baggage and history with them and make them a sympathetic character. And you know, the, the trick to that I think is what you did where going into the story, you don't know who he is. So people don't bring that baggage and that judgment with them. If they knew who he was at the start of the story, it would have been a lot harder to get that emotional pull and the feelings that you get when you're listening to, you know, his situation and what he's gone through. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's so much that has to do with that first draft and finding it myself, which I think that is always, there's, I see someone like, I think it was Terry Pratchett, or there's always that quote that comes back round and round on Twitter about, you know, the first draft is telling yourself the story, mm-hmm. which is, I think, why I'm, I, I, I'm so much more comfortable writing short stories than novels. Like I've written one novel and I'm just doing a final edit on a second one at the minute. And my problem like with the short story, you can get through a draft and finish it and sit back and look at it. Right. And then you can start to sort of shape it. Whereas when you're writing something longer, I, I have a really bad attention span and I can't leave something alone. This bugs me earlier on. Yeah. And you end up sort of going back and you rewrite the same page about eight or nine times before you get anywhere with it. It feels like you're means, trapped in a room, doesn't it? I mean, that's, yeah, I have really two does. abandoned <laughs> novels for that reason. Oh, I had one I was writing last year that I absolutely, I was completely in love with the idea of it, but it had started to sort of comment on what was going on in the world. Mm-hmm. And then as like situations were getting more intense in the world. They started to compete and be worse than the story. So then you amp the story up and then reality <laughs> amped up. And I was like, I'm, I, I know I'm not doing this, but this is starting to feel like I'm, I'm, I'm leading us to apocalypse by accident. It's like I had to sort of step away from it in the end. Yeah. It's, it's, it's always weird when that happens too, when you have this great story that you've written and the timing when it's ready to be released or, or whatever uh, coincides with something that's going on in the world. And you're like, everybody's going to think I just took this off the pages, (laughs) but this happened months before this. So yeah, it's, it's always that. Do I still tell the story or not? Um, I'd say, well, saying about stories and sort of that sort of idea of influence that I always remember. I went to see the first Lord of the Rings film. So fellowship of the ring. mm -hmm. And there was a, guy i'd sort of been friends of through somebody else who i it's one of those things where when you write you're introduced to people who are writing is oh he has the same problem you do he has to sit in a room for so many hours a day and try and pour his head out onto a page and this guy was writing this huge fantasy story he'd been writing for years and halfway through fellowship of the ring you just heard him go no and storm out and it turns out he'd sort of been writing lord of the rings but had never read or heard of lord of the rings before oh yeah he just watched all of these things and like whatever piece of jewelry and whatever short people in his story were about to go on a journey. He was just seeing it happen and going, I had no idea this had happened before. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's that, it's that retelling of the story. That's so common. You know, you talk about uh, like Joseph Campbell and the, the monomyth and you know, how we oh. have these, these stories that we tell each other and there's really only, what do they say? Three stories. Some people say one, you know, but yeah, it's, it's just different variations of that same, that same core. I remember going through that whole thing. Like when I was, I think I was just when I was at college of like, 
it's Hero with a Thousand Faces. And I yeah. think that was about the time Story came out as well. Mm. And you just fall down that rabbit hole of an anal- you're analyzing your stories so deeply that they stop being stories and they just become sort of ciphers for whatever's <laughs> been going on in your head. And then you realize that somebody like Ancient Greece must have been having roughly the same problems as you because they read the same thing. Right. Like, oh, God. <laughs> so what is it that attracts you to writing horror and speculative fiction, the, the darker stuff that you write? Well, it's, it's weird because like when I started writing, I sort of, I was more, I kind of wrote sort of like fantasy and darker fantasy stuff, but never really did a lot with it. I'd sort of write things and hide them away in drawers. And it's, um, I was just, I, I had this one day where I ended up, I went out for a drive, um, with my wife. She wanted me to go along to this place in Nottingham and we were on the motorway and it was a really misty morning and we drove under a bridge and there was a guy on the bridge and then there was someone on the next bridge. And there was just this sort of weird light bulb moment of I'd read a lot of ghost stories growing up and I'd been watching sort of MR James stuff whenever it was on TV. And it was this thing of like, there's like a modern ghost story on a motorway there somewhere. So I wrote that one and I just self-published that just to see what it did. And a couple of people liked it. And I had one person say about like they'd read it when their, I think it was like their partner was away. So they then struggled to sleep with the lights on. And it was just that I, I liked doing that to someone yeah so i tried writing another one and another one and i started to all the stuff i've been struggling to like overwrite in a fantasy sort of metaphor way i found you could put it into horror because you can talk about someone through their reactions to something impossible that they find Mm -hmm. and it just yeah it allows you to write about characters in a really interesting way whilst also having fun with the horror side of it so it's it grew from that sort of one trip on a motorway and now it's like I, i sort of Every so often I think about like, I should try going back. Like I, I think pretty much if I don't write a horror, like a sci-fi story, eventually my dad is going to hunt me down. Cause he's obsessed with like, he brought me up on like Blade Runner in 2001. <laughs> but every time I try and write anything else, it eventually becomes horror. I wrote something for, um, I was going to be for a, like a sci-fi competition. And, um, it started off with, it was going to be about people who manipulated time, but then the device they were using was old. And then it was like, oh God, I'm writing another ghost story. It's another cursed item. It's just, I put more wires on the end of it and it's now pretending to be sci-fi, but it's still that kind of speculative, darker side of horror. Yeah. So I, there's a, yeah, there's I, a really interesting handholding that goes on between those two genres. And I think that, you know, they, they naturally play well with each other. Yeah, I mean, like, sort of, you, with things like obviously Frankenstein. I mean, it's it's so such a, a perfect marriage of the two, isn't it? Really, yeah. the um, that sort of sense of like sort of the developing rush of science, and then these terrible things that can happen because of it. Right. Absolutely. So, what does talking about scary things? What does a good story have to do to scare you? I mean, do you remember uh, a specific movie or a story or an audio piece, maybe a, something you listened to on the radio that that scared you? I think it was the first thing that really freaked me out. It was really odd. I only sort of, it was one of those things I'd repressed, I think, was that when I was a kid, my parents had a, um, like a VHS tape and it was a collection of old Kate Bush music videos, like from the eighties, these ridiculously big cheesy sort of productions. But one of them was called, I think it was experiment four. And it was, all basically set around a song to do with people making a sound that could kill you. And there was a bit in the video where you saw this face and I've never seen it. When I was like sort of five or six years old, they'd like make me leave the room. 
Like I could watch the first part of the video and then when this thing would turn around from this sound, they'd be like, oh, no, you can't see that. And like even when they had people around, if they put that video on, it'd be like their kids could stay in the room. It's like, oh, Chris can't watch this. He needs to go outside. <laughs> and I realized like I've never watched it. And it's I was on YouTube once and I nearly watched it. And part of me was like, you know what? Actually, the idea in my head is now scarier than whatever it's going to be that i'm just going to be annoyed when i see it so it's like i've never watched it and i think that's it it's i like something that leaves like a psychological scare in your head like Mm -hmm. the first time i saw the shining i loved the fact that because i'd seen sort of um you know early nightmare on elm street films and stuff and they were really good fun but like they were kind of roller coaster rides right whereas like to see something that didn't offer you any answers but just left you with these questions and this sense of just dread right and I, I think that's what i always look for now is like you want something that's gonna leave you with enough questions but at the same point just keep you on edge once it starts moving right that 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 rolling sense of dread that slowly ebbs through the piece that's yeah. really hard to do and i think that uh when it's done well it's it definitely leaves the listener the reader with something to think about definitely it was like i it took me ages to get around to watch the witch i think by the time i'd seen it 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 had that thing where it came out and everyone went it's amazing and then everyone said that for long enough that everyone else went nah it's overrated (laughs) and when i finally watched it i spent about the first 20 minutes going well it does seem to be a film about farming more than anything else (laughs) but like sort of some of the stuff towards the end yeah was so then like completely caught me off guard that it's like, Oh, I can see why this got people. Yeah. Like the performances were so naturalistic that once it progressed, like, it went to that really dark place at the end. You're like, yeah, no wonder people came out of cinemas going, what the hell just happened in there? <laughs> so when you're writing, what do you have any routines? I mean, a lot of people have their rituals and their things that they do to kind of get them in the, the right mindset. I think it's kind of like when you sit down for a scary movie, you know, you have to have, the popcorn or, you know, whatever your, yeah, your yeah. thing is, you know, so that you're ready. Um, and I think writing is a lot like that too. When we're creating these things, we kind of have to get ourselves into the right headspace. Is there anything specific that you do that works for you? My thing it's over the last few years has become getting up earlier and earlier to write. Like I was never an early morning person in any way, shape or form, but like, I started to have a couple of jobs where when I was trying to write in the evening where I used to try and leave it quite late, I was so tired. It just, I read it the next morning and it's like, none of this makes any sense. So I started to like, kind of, if I was getting up at seven, it kind of crept back to like, well, if I get about half six, I'll do half an hour. And it sort of slowly worked its way further back. And it's like, I'm getting up at about quarter past five now. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just that thing of like, it's the house is completely silent. Like get up and have a quick shower, turn the laptop on. And it's, there's something about that. I know I've got a couple of hours where I'm going to go and there's no distractions to it. Whereas like if I ever set aside, if I've got a day off or like at the weekend and I'm like, I have a whole day to write as much as I want. My brain just wanders and finds distractions. It's like, you know, sort of you get lost on social media for ages or you fall down some rabbit hole online and that's it. Whereas I think it's just those couple of hours in the morning and slowly getting, I was like, I seem to be having less sleep and now I just sort of write more. It's yeah. It's that sort of, sort of quiet, almost still like in the winter as well. Like it's still dark as well. It's, mm-hmm. I love that. It really just focuses me in. It's like the modern day equivalent of the cabin in the woods, right? You have that yeah, couple yeah, exactly. hours where nothing <laughs> can distract you. Yeah. 
That's it. I think it's, and you also get that thing that you go into the rest of the day and no matter what people sort of throw at you or how annoying things are, it's like, you know, you've achieved that at the beginning. And it's sort of, it's a really good way of like, you know, it's like, no matter what they throw at you, it's like, that's nah, fine. I, I, you know, sort of, I was writing Jack the Ripper this morning. It's all good. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I find sometimes too, that, that, that early morning, that almost kind of quasi hypnagogic state that you get where, you yeah, know, you're still, yeah. Your, your brain's still kind of slightly dreaming. It, it makes it a lot easier to get to some of those weirder, stranger ideas. That's it. My second novella I've got out with my um, publisher, that came from, I was in the house by myself. I can't remember where my wife was at the time. She was away somewhere. And I woke up after a really like, you know, on those nightmares where like when it, there's no logic to it, there were just images in my head. And I knew I was a horror writer. So I was like, I need to write these down. And then sort of just from writing them down and then starting to stitch a story out of it, that became my entire day was I just had to get this thing out of my brain and make sense of it. Mm -hmm. Cause it was like those weird sort of groggy things I've been left with. I was like, I knew there was a story there somewhere, but it's like, I just had to fill in the gaps I hadn't managed to do when I was asleep. Yeah. And it's weird how that happens. And I don't know if it's the same for you, but if I have something that occurs like that, where I wake up and I, I have like the piece of a story or, an idea, I got to get up and, and at least write a few paragraphs because it's yeah. gone. If I wait, I'm like, oh, oh I'll remember that, that in the morning. So many times, like early on where you wake up and go, yeah, I'll remember that. And then by the time you sit down with a piece of paper, it's like, oh God damn it. What the hell was that thing about? <laughs> <laughs> it's like nobody remembers their dreams. You know, it's the same type yeah. of thing. It's like, that's gone. The, the muse is fickle. You know, she's like, I'm telling you something now, but if you don't want to write it down, that's fine. I'm not coming back. <laughs> although i worked with a guy who he um before we were going out once he was sort of saying about i had this really weird dream last night and it didn't make any sense and he explained sort of stuff that he remembered about like it was a hospital ward and there were people in beds and there were sort of doctors going around but there was this odd thing to it and after he'd sort of gone through it all i i stood there and made sense of it and i was like oh they'd be doing this because of that and those people would only have been in the beds because they were in the room you couldn't get into and that's the room that you really and i noticed that everyone watching me had like taken two steps back like, sorry didn't mean to channel the nightmare but it's like yeah you do get that thing in your head where it's like it's a bit of a jigsaw puzzle it's like, well i've got to put that together now yeah, absolutely absolutely so aside from the shadows at the door anthology which had your story gallo glass in it or it was it the gap the gallo glass right the gap, that's right yeah yeah um yeah which i think i recently found out that's from Macbeth, which i didn't realize oh really yeah, I was, I was thinking it was, I was watching the Michael Fassbender version and someone said about this gallow glass. And I was like, so that's where that came from in my head. It was like the Jack the Ripper thing. It's, it seems that I have something that files stuff away in my head, but not in any useful way. It just <laughs> crams it all in drawers and then occasionally something falls out. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds good. We'll use that. <laughs> so you mentioned uh, working on a novel and, and having a novel out. So wh where can folks find your, your work if people enjoyed the story today and they're like, I got to get me some more Christopher Long stories? Well, the best place to go is I've got a, a website, which is cjlongwords.com. And on there, you've got a shop which links to all the stuff I've got on Amazon. So that's the Shadows, the Door Anthologies on there, and then my novellas and collections that I've got out with Kensington Gould Publishing. So there's like six novellas, is it two collections? And then the first novel's on there. And then hopefully, pretty soon, the second novel, once I've sort of tackled the final edit of that, that'll all go on there as well. 
and that you've also got like a weekly blog and i sort of i I stick bits of stories up there that i don't know quite what to do with and there's sort of poetry on there as well which i sort of play around with when i'm feeling sort of maybe a little too pretentious (laughs) so so good news then there's lots of stuff out there for people to to sink their teeth into yeah when i put the website together i sort of thought i've you know i sort of i really need to get like a shop with sort of links to where this all is and it was as i was going down it there was a point of like I didn't actually realize I'd written this much stuff. It's particularly sort of the earlier sort of like the short novellas. It was, I'd written six short stories. And when they signed me, um, they said, Oh, could you write a story to go with each of them? And I ended up writing six stories that interlinked with each other Uh all set around a, it was a story of a, a stolen painting, which had these sort of hunting hounds on it. And it was, people were basically being drawn into this painting. And then it was sort of the ripple effects of it going around this city as well. That's cool. And yeah. And that, then they put those in the collections and then they were like, do you want to try a novel? And I was like, yeah, I've always wanted to try a novel. And the first novel seemed to happen quite quickly. It's sort of, when I look back at it now, it, it, it's like you say about like, so that thing of like waking up and sort of having a half remembered thing. Some of it now is a blur writing it. Yeah. The, what is it? I've heard the phrase before that the first novel is a gift um, because it's just this collection of all these things that your mind has been processing for so long that it, it sometimes becomes easier to get that down on the page. But you know, then whenever you try to chase that dragon and do it again, it becomes a little more difficult. Yeah, it was actually the thing is with that novel, what I decided to do, like I said earlier about meta is I'd sort of, I got loads of ideas for novels, but I couldn't sort of, like I was saying, like trying to write the long stuff, I, my brain just gets distracted. Mm. I ended up putting it together as it's, um, it's framed as the final collection of stories by a horror writer who's disappeared. Ah, okay. So you've got this kind of overarching theme of like, these are the stories he wanted releasing after his death. And there's sort of think there's these sort of, images that are cropping up across all the stories that then sort of tie into like a final confession as well. And it was sort of, it was a real sort of putting them all together and getting that to work was really sort of, it was a, it was really like sort of adrenaline rush as I finished it. I wrote the, the last bit of the book was sort of written from this guy's point of view. And I still remember I like finished it all off, saved it, sent it to my publisher. And then I just sat and stared at a blank screen. And it's that thing of like, well, I can't not write something. You know, is that compulsion <laughs> still there? So it's like, how do you follow writing your first novel? Yeah. I have no idea how to do that. <laughs> it's like, I sometimes like when I look at the second one, I'm like, maybe I still don't know yet, but I'm figuring it out. <laughs> <laughs> it's a journey, man. Totally. Yeah. That's it. I mean, like sort of one of the, the sort of the things, the first novel taught me more than anything else. And whether some of this just comes from being like sort of an only child was it had to teach me that when you finish your first novel, it turns out people don't come knocking at your doors going, here are all these awards. You have changed the world. <laughs> Cause it's always like when I was younger and I was always like, I'm going to write a book. It was always that feeling of like, and that book will just fly. And it turns out nah, not so much. Yeah. It doesn't work like the montages in the movies. Right. So no, right. The amount of times I have fallen out with our TV because, because someone particularly usually in a sitcom decides to write a novel. And within a couple of weeks, they're like, I finished my book. And you're like, Oh, there's no way. Come on. <laughs> it's probably crap. suffering. That's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so for people that did enjoy the story and, and uh, maybe dig out and find some of the other stuff that you've created and you've written and decide they want to interact with you, where's the best place to do that? Um, I'm probably the best places. I'm on Twitter pretty much every day. Okay. Um, you'll find me there. It's at CJ long, Chris. 
um yeah i'll sort of whenever there's a new blog up i'll put something on there and i'll usually be putting something on in the morning when i'm either when something's working i'll be slightly smug and when it's not working i'll be complaining about the fact that my imagination has <laughs> let me down yet again <laughs> all right well hey i really appre- i know it's a lot later where you are than it is here in pittsburgh pennsylvania um so i don't want to keep you on too long but i really do appreciate you taking the time to, to talk and uh you know give the fans an opportunity to know a little bit more about you and what you create. No, that's no problem. And thank you very much for the opportunity. Like it's, it's such an honor to have something on the shelves of the wicked library. It's just awesome. Well, we're happy to have you and, and we'll have to bring you back again in the future. Brilliant. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the wicked library. The wicked library is a ninth story studios production. Ninthstory.com. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. You can be a part of helping us keep the shows coming for as little as $2 a month. All supporters get wicked fun rewards like bookmarks, access to our archives, bonus stories, and more. The more generous you are, the more wicked the rewards are. And don't forget, this season we actually have a new series just for our Patreon supporters at the $10 a month and above level. The show features a librarian and explores what he does with all his time. Complete credits and full show notes, including links and information from today's episode, can be found at thewickedlibrary.com. You can also find links to our Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes page there. Until next time, go ahead, leave the lights on. It makes it easier for Jack to find his way home. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.